Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles to John 17, open up your worship guide. Uh, we're continuing this morning in our sermon series through the Gospel of, of John. And as we're, we've been going through John's Gospel uh, since the fall, we've been th- asking the question of how does Jesus uh, work in our lives, but how has he challenged very important things in our hearts? Like, so this is the idea of Jesus and our blank. And so today's sermon is... Jesus and our mission, and it arises from John 17, verses 1 through 24. And this morning I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and I invite you to follow along. So friends, let's give our careful attention to God's word that is given in love for you this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to the heaven and said, The Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have given everything. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made 
known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Friends, this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. This is your word that you have given us and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Your word is given to us so that we would grow and become more like you, that we would know your love. And so, Father, be with us now that your spirit will be working in our hearts so that we would know your word for our life today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The SS United States was an engineering marvel. It was created, it was actually built in 1950 to 1951. It was built to be a troop transport, to transport troops from America to other places across the, the ocean blue. And when it set sail, it broke a record. It was the fastest ship to transport anything across the Atlantic. And that was on her maiden voyage. However, a few years later, it was scrapped. Within two, 20 years, it was sold off. Because, but honestly, it never actually functioned as a troop transport. It was always an ocean liner. And, th and that makes sense. When you think about the creation and of airplanes, and you look at some airplanes and they are massive. My, my son, my old son is loving airplanes and he loves seeing how tanks can drive onto an airplane these days. He's, that's our technology now. But with that innova innovation and that invention, here's this ship that was never used as a troop transport. She never fulfilled her mission or her purpose. And so now she's docked in Philadelphia on the Delaware River her, the majority, majority of her interior, parts and all, decor and all, have been auctioned off. And there's a parable here to us that this ship was not made for luxury, it was not made for convenience, but that's how it was actually used. This was a ship that was made with a specific purpose and mission. In fact, this parable help, is a, is a par this parable helps us understand something about our own identity and purpose as a church. And this passage right before us unpacks the mission of the church. And when I use this language of mission, perhaps you are thinking of other passages that think about mission. Perhaps you think about the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go into all the earth, baptize, teaching, all the things I have commanded. Perhaps you think about Acts 1-8, that you are my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But And when you think about these Great Commission passages, there are seven of them. Here in, in John's prayer, excuse me, in Jesus' prayer, in John 17, 18, there's a, a great a commission. Father, as you have sent me, I send them. We see that again later in John 20. Peace be with you. I send you. So when we think about mission, this is actually a theme that is dominant in John's gospel. That this word sent is used 40 different times in John's gospel. And what is so striking about this particular passage, which is a, the longest prayer that we see from Jesus' own lips, that this prayer is about the church's mission in this world. It is a prayer about our purpose as a church. It is a prayer about the purpose of your life. 
And Jesus has a lot to say about the mission of his church. And so where we're at in John's gospel is that Jesus is actually concluding the entire Lord's Supper narrative from John 13, 14, 15, 16. He's concluding the entire upper room discourse with a prayer, and it's a beautiful one. He's not simply praying for the, his immediate disciples who are there with him. He's praying for all who would come to know God by their ministry. God is praying, Jesus is praying for you here. And, but Jesus also, during this time, this is meant to be a deeply encouraging prayer for his people. He has just given them also very challenging news. That within his disciples here, there's one who is going to betray him. There's, a, there's another who's going to deny him. And that he's going to leave them. He's going to be physically separated from them and go and prepare a place for them in his father's House. And so this prayer is meant to be deeply encouraging to God's people as well. And so this prayer starts off with a, in a very specific moments. And, and he's like Jesus says, the hour has come. Frederick Bruner puts it this way you know, with his own translation of the passage. And it's an interesting translation. But this is what he says, that the Greek hour in John's gospel is not literally a, a 60-minute hour. No, this actually represents a decisive point in time. This is the passion time of his preparatory Thursday nights, and then Friday, and then Saturday, and Sunday's world-turning salvation events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This is what he says. Jesus is clearly excited that the most important events ever to happen in world history are actually beginning to happen in this very moment. So Bruner, instead of saying the hour is at hand, he translates, the weekend is here. That's Jesus' attitude as he goes into this prayer. And so what is this? What's Jesus praying for? As we begin to unpack this prayer, the first thing that he is praying for is glory. Is glory. Jesus is praying for glory. We see this immediately in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. The weekend is here. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. And you keep going that this language of glory per, is pervasive throughout this entire prayer. And so when we think about the word glory, what does it mean? This is not a, la a word that we use within our everyday lives. But when we, so when we think about glory, there are two parts to it. Because just speaking plainly, like when you think about glory, that glory is simply, in a sense, you're describing something about God. It is who he is. And there's something beautiful. There's something compelling to his beauty, to his glory, to his person, to his character, to his relationship, relationships. All of that, one summary word to describe that beauty and that, that compelling nature of who he is is glory. Glory describes that beauty. But another thing that gl glory gets at is that Jesus is actually seeking to share in that glory with God. Jesus wants to partake and participate in everything that God is. He wants that perfect community of Father, Son, and, and Spirit. That's what he is after. So he's seeking to honor God, and he's also seeking to be with God. And Jesus wants to partake in, in, in this relationship that is rightfully his because he is fully God. 
And Jesus wants to partake in that relationship, a relationship that we learn from Philippians 2 that is fully his. But Jesus, what we find from Philippians 2, that Jesus humbled himself. He did not consider equality something to hold on to, but set it aside and took on the form of a servant for you. And so this is like what Jesus is getting at, that to glorify God means to honor him, to desire him, to be with him. And then elsewhere we see, well, and this is another dimension we see here in this, in this chapter, is that Jesus has glorified God by doing everything that he has commanded, that throughout Jesus' entire ministry, he has revealed God in his fullness. And so Jesus is saying, I have glorified you. But then he also goes on and prays for glory in a very particular way. He says, glorify your son. Glorify your son. So can, let's connect some dots here. How is the son going to be glorified by God the Father? Well, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and you have kept your word. So just to put it plainly, Jesus is glorified by the church. Jesus is glorified by the church. That is actually the answer to Jesus' prayer. Father, glorify me, and the answer to that prayer is the church. So here's Leslie Newbegin. And one of the challenges with this, this entire passage is to limit myself to quoting Leslie Newbegin. This is... He's amazing on this passage. I will give you several amazing books. Anyways, but here's Leslie's new begin. The work of Jesus is the communication of the name of God to us, to a community. He does not bequeath to posterity a body of teaching preserved in a book. He does not leave behind an ideal or a program. He leaves behind a community, a church. And see, friends, the church exists not because of our own decisions, not because of our theological insight or moral excellence or anything like that. Paul even described the church, this is 1 Corinthians 1 and then 2, that the church is a bunch of nobodies. And the church exists because God has called us out of this world. He has called us out of darkness and into the light and has given us to his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the Father glorifies the Son through the church. So Jesus makes this even clearer to us in his prayer. And he gets to John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is a, the, this is a big verse. There's a lot in here. Christopher Wright captures the weightiness of the verse but this way, that Jesus sends the church into the world in the same way that the Father had sent him. And this raises a lot of interesting questions and challenges. So when you think about this, the church's example, the church's model for being sent into the world is Jesus Christ himself. And so when God sent his Son into the world— Jesus was sent for the glory of God. When God, the Father, sent his Son into the world, he, gave his, he sent his Son because he loved the world. That God sent his Son to a particular place. Jesus, friends, has all of this in mind when he sends and commissions the church on her mission in this world. That the church is sent for the glory of God, for the life of the world, 
into a particular place. And this brings us to our next point, that Jesus is praying, yes, Jesus is praying for his glory, that, that Jesus would be glorified through the church. And so let's think about the church's place. The church's place. When you look at all the letters in the New Testament, they always begin with a particular place. And so, for example, in Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. In Romans, to the church in Rome. See, friends, the church exists for the place where God has sent his church. And so the, the, this congregation exists for the life of Westchester. And so Michael Goheen, a Canadian uh, theologian, he writes this, he wrote this, It is of the very essence of the church that it is for a place, for that section of the world for which it has been made responsible. And see, our mission here is actually the same mission in the world that Jesus Christ has, to see all things be reconciled to God, to see all people come to know God. And this is what Jesus is praying for. He's praying for our mission here in this world. Like, so we see that we are in the world, but not of the world. That's a summary of how Jesus is praying for us. And so Leslie Newbegin put it this way. The church is for the world against the world. The church is against the world for the world. The church is for the human community in that place, that church, that's that, not church, the village, the city, the nation, in the sense that Christ is for the world. We are against the world for the word, world. We are for the world against the world. And see, friends, we're actually always tempted, always pulled to move away from that Christ-like posture, that model of engaging and witnessing of, to God's glory in this world. And we've seen the church fail in this throughout church history. Like there's three specific failures, temptations, ways that we're pulled to move from this posture in this world. So, for example, we've seen the church conform to society where the church adopts the world's values and lifestyle. And when this happens, the church has no distinctiveness from any other social group. There's many examples to that, but we need to remember that we are the salt of the earth. Another example, another failure, another temptation is that we see the church withdrawing from the world, seeking to preserve its own distinctiveness. But when the church withdraws from the world, the only evangelism or the mission that can exist is when people come to the church. But what Jesus is doing here is that Jesus is sending the church to every corner of the world. We need to remember that we do not exist for ourselves, but for the sake and the life of the world. Jesus' followers are sent into every place. So then another failure is that a temptation that we see is that the church being overly critical against the world, being harsh, judgmental, not seeing the created goodness in the world or how people hunger for the Lord. Because every single person hungers for the Lord. Every single person is created in the image of God. This is something we need to remember. So these are failures that we have temptation, failures in church history. And this is what Jesus is warning against. And so as Jesus is, continues to pray for the church, he's praying for the church to be distinct in the world, to be otherworldly in this world. And there are two proofs of this. This is our third point. There are two proofs of how the church is, be, is, 
is pursuing God, Christ's glory in this world. And so the first one is the church's holiness. And we see this in verse 17. Your word is truth. Sanctify them with your truth. And so Jesus' frank assessment here is that we are sinners. While we live in this world, we'll face many trials and tribulations and temptations and danger. We need to be protected against them. We need to be even protected against ourselves. We need to be sanctified. That's a loaded word. But to be sanctified, it's a rich theological word for growth. It could mean that, and we see this in 1 Corinthians, that you have been washed, that you have been purified. But Jesus is praying to the Father, asking the Father to change us, to help us grow through the truth, through God's word. But also, if you think about this in the context of John 14, where Jesus describes himself that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's, Jesus is the word of God, the revelation of God, and we are sanctified by him. And that, so Jesus here, as he is actually, he's pointing to himself so that Jesus is glorified through our own sanctification because he is at the center of it. And in fact, as in this prayer, Father, sanctify them. Look at who's the one who is responsible for your sanctification. It's God. Sanctify them with your truth. God is the one who gives the Spirit. God's the one who pours out His grace. And what we see throughout Scripture is that we work with Him. We cooperate with Him in this. So there's this very beautiful image in Colossians where we're told to put off the old, put on the new. That word, that verb for put on describes the role of a, of a servant coming alongside his master or employer, helping him to get dressed throughout the day and prepared. If you've seen Downton Abbey or anything like that, you get the image of a servant coming alongside the nobility to help him get dressed. But that Colossians narrative is that the Holy Spirit is the one who's serving us to put on the new man to put on the Christ life within us. So friends, if you want to grow and to change, Jesus has to be at the very center of your life. He can change you, and he prays for your growth to happen. But here's the other thing that you need to know. God is passionate about your sanctification. He is passionate about your growth. That you do not become more like Jesus simply by coasting through life and being passive. God will do everything in his power to help make you grow. So the best meme, yes, a meme, that actually unpacks this incredible theological insight, it's you watch it, you laugh, but in truth, you want to cry for the person experiencing this. There's a gentleman who comes to ride up an escalator. The escalator's going up, and the escalator starts moving, and then somehow the person trips over himself and then tumbles, kept, keeps going down, but what's, he, that, he's falling down, but what's the escalator doing? Moving him up. That's sanctification. That our lives are always stumbling, and God is committed to helping us mature in Christ. So here's Philippians 1.8, that he who began a good work in you will not rest until it is finished. See, the church's holiness is a proof of Christ's glory within us.
There's a second thing here, that our holiness is also caught up within our unity. This is the second proof of our, the church's otherworldliness that proves that the church is in the world and for the world, but not of the world. So the church is unity. We see this in verses 21 and 23. And this is actually the final conclusion of everything that Jesus has been saying and, and teaching to his disciples. That earlier in chapter 13, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said, this is the example I've given you. And he also says, love one another. Then also in the chapter from last week, John 15, that he says that you should lay down your life for the other. The, like, so the church is called to love one another. And in the realm of apologetics, and apologetics is this study of defending the Christian, the Christian faith, but in the realm of apologetics, like, there we, we recognize that there's no silver bullet. There's no sure argument that proves the existence of God, and that's true. That in, and so Jesus says something very startling to us here. This is what Francis Schaeffer called the final apologetic. And I'm going to quote him at length here. This is from The Mark of a Christian, one of the best, most informative books, informative books in my life. If as Christians we do not cringe... It seems to me that we are not very sensitive or very honest because Jesus here gives us the final apologetic. What is the final apologetic, you may ask? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the final apologetic. So in John 13, the point, this is still Schaefer, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love toward other true Christians, the world has a right to judge whether or not he is a Christian. Here, Jesus is saying something that is much more cutting and more profound, that we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some sort of oneness of true Christians. Like, verse 23 that the world may that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. Jesus' words are clear. The unity of the church, the oneness of the church is a testimony to God's love. That for the world to know that God loves this world, the church needs to be one. The love of Christians towards one another this display of the unity of the church, that is the final apologetic. If the church is not unified, if we're not praying for one another, forgiving one another, sharing each other's burdens, submitting to one another, and the list goes on. If we're not doing these things, then we cannot expect the world to believe the gospel. That is what Jesus says here. And friends, we know that unity is hard, and it's also beautiful. It's hard in a sense because the church in 20, this year, the church in 2022, as many years, the church tends to be a proxy war. For every fight in our culture, the church has it. But it's hard. Unity is hard, and yet it's beautiful. So one of our missionary partners, here's a story of beauty. One of our missionary partners is New Covenant Presbyterian Church. It's outside Pittsburgh. It's a church that is a product of mergers of sort. It's actually Jennifer's childhood church, by the way, in a sense. In 2007, Covenant Presbyterian Church's building burnt down. That's the church Jennifer grew up in. 
about a year later, a Presbyterian church of a different denomination approached the congregation and said, you have a pastor and yet no building. We have a building and yet no pastor. Can we overcome our theological differences? Can we work through our differing church cultures and come together for the sake of the kingdom and mission? And so they did. So covenant, their very last action as a church was to sell their church property for $1. Their church property was in, was in a, a largely black community. And so they sold this church for $1 to the new Jerusalem Church of God in Christ. And now, 15 years later, both churches are thriving and flourishing. See, friends, like to use the language of Archbishop William Temple, the church is the only organization that does not exist for the sake of her membership. Friends, we exist for the glory of God. We exist for the life of the world. We exist so that this world will come to know Jesus Christ. That is why we exist. And one of the core central beliefs to see that happen, that we must pursue ourselves, to, use the, to pursue, that we ourselves must pursue, to use the language of the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in one holy Catholic, which means universal, global, an apostolic church. That is vitally important because our unity, our oneness, that is a sign of our holiness, yes, but that is how God, the Son, is glorified. That is the answer to Jesus' prayer that the Father glorifies the Son through our unity. That is our mission in this world, and it's vitally important so that every person would know that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus loved them and went to the cross to die for them. Let's pray.